Our Father, we give you thanks that you are the gracious King of the universe who, in spite of making a universe so vast that we have not even been able to plumb the depths of it, and yet at the same time you care about us individually, intimately. And Lord, you are aware of us. In fact, we read in Psalm 139 that you are aware of our being formed even while we are yet in the womb. And so, Father, it's hard for us to grasp how one can, uh, so great as, even as great as God, can, can know and, and do all these things. But we're thankful we serve that God. And Lord, we know the trials and tribulations that we face in this life and which are, are being faced by our country today are, in the scope of all things, small, but yet at the same time great. Because even as we're looking at this passage of Scripture today, things that might seem small are great in the eyes of God because of their impact, because of the widespread influence that uh, sin brings into the world. Our Father, I pray that we will have uh, hearts to grasp the truth that you're saying to each one of us today. We know that as we study Scripture, it can individually be applied by the Spirit of God to each of our hearts wherever we are in our own walk with you and in our needs. And so we ask you to do that today, to be powerfully present even as you have promised. And Lord, to bless throughout our uh, complex this morning. We think of each class all the way from other adult classes down to the, to the nursery role, and I pray that you will bless in each situation and that your name will be exalted today. In Jesus' name, amen. You turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I'd like to read the first five verses. Israel, as we have looked at the first six chapters, has gotten across the Jordan River miraculously, and they have conquered Jericho miraculously. And now they're anticipating the next step. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Beth-El, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied, spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let, the people, let all the people go up, for only two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai, for do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from this people went up there, and they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. It's interesting little uh, tidbit here. If you look at that fifth verse, Shabarim, the word means quarries. So it was not a place like a town. It was simply a quarry. And there's no way of identifying it today specifically because there were many quarries. Possibly the quarry from which Jericho was built is being referred to here. We don't know. Robert. In verse 5 where it says 36, can we assume that Israel never had any casualties? It seems like in the Battle of Jericho they had not had any casualties, right? To them it's unheard of. 36 men are slain. To us 36 out of 3,000 might seem like a fairly small number, 
but to each of those 36, it was pretty important, and to their families. And so I, I think even the loss of one would have been almost as shocking to the nation. This passage gives us one of the most powerful illustrations in the whole Old Testament concerning what it means to have the mind of Christ or to not have the mind of Christ. Last Sunday, uh, near the end of class, I read from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. And that passage to me is so significant relative to this passage. I'd like to go back to it again for a moment and just uh, emphasize some of the statements that are made in that passage, particularly the first verse of Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we don't really see behind the scene to understand what really is taking place. But, but this passage, I think, helps us to, to see more clearly. And even though Christ hasn't yet been born, the mind of Christ is still the mind of God, the mind of Yahweh, whatever you want to say. In verse 5 of Romans 8, it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So where our mind is set, that's the path we follow. Obviously, when, not without some deviation, of course. But basically, that's the path we follow. And the sixth verse tells us, and, and this applies directly to the passage in, in Joshua 7, for the mindset on the flesh is, is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh, we're told in this passage, is hostile to God. Now, Achan may not have viewed himself as, quote, hostile to God, but that his mind was on the things of the flesh and not on the things of God is hostility. The scripture tells us that you cannot worship God and mammon. You will serve one or you will serve the other. You cannot have a foot in both camps. And, and that's really one of the truths that comes out of chapter seven. It's not possible to walk the thin line because there is no thin line between obedience and disobedience. And, and even though Achan was a member of the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people, he could be a man who, to put it in uh, St. Augustine's terms, was in, of the city of, the, of man and not of the city of God. St. Augustine, who lived um, at the end of the fourth and the early part of the fifth century, wrote a classic work called The City of God, and in it he basically describes that the whole human race is divided into two camps, those which live in the city of God and those which live in the city of man. The city of man is controlled by the devil. And, and that, that's just another way of putting what this passage in Romans is talking about. You're either hostile to God or, or you're favorable to God. You either uh, have a mind of the flesh or a mind after the spirit, and, and there's, nothing, um, there's nothing in between. This, this passage, I think, really highlights Achan's problem. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded us, or commanded those that were listening to him, and, and through them, us, that we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and if we do seek the kingdom of God, those other things that are necessary, those other things that are needful, will be added unto us. Now, Achan's mind was so guided by the flesh that he yielded to that which would end up destroying him, and not only him, but his whole family, his whole household, is destroyed because he sees these three little items, a blue cloth, a little bit of gold, a little bit of silver, he covets them, and as a result, he yields to the flesh. 
and walks in the flesh. And, and I, I emphasize this because there is, this passage seems to imply in Joshua 7 that no one else did. No one. Of the thousands of men who raced into the city and slaughtered that uh, population there, none of the others yielded to the temptation. And they must have seen lots of things also that were pretty to them and looked desirable. Achan simply did not have the mind of the Lord so that he could wait for all those things to be added to him because this was the only city under the ban. The next city, the next city, the next city, the next city, the dozens of cities that yet were to be conquered were not under the ban. Plunder at will. <laughs> Take what you want. Only this city. And so he died because he had this mind of the flesh and he didn't have the mind of the Lord in this matter and the patience to wait until God said, this is yours. This is mine, he said, but that can be yours. So this is, a, I think, a powerful lesson to us because it, it really does apply and we'll see that as we go along here. The first verse here of Joshua chapter 7, I think was written to give us prior knowledge of the disaster, of the reason for the disaster, which is then described in, in verses 2 through 5. Uh, I mean, if all we did was read that Israel went up and tried to capture Ai and, and they were defeated and rushed back, we'd say, what? <laughs> but of course, the first verse tells us that Achan acted unfaithfully. So let's look at the situation. Here's Israel encamped at Gilgal. They have conquered Jericho. And Jericho has been flattened and burned. And now they're contemplating the next move. What is the next thing they ought to do? Well, the next logical move was to plunge into the heart of Canaan, which meant to drive westward. About 12 miles west of Jericho, near the top of the central range that runs down through Israel, was the small city of Ai and its neighboring city two miles further to the west, Bethel, which means the house of the Lord. By the way, the name Ai, which in the Hebrew is always written Chai, which means the Ai, which means the ruin. The translation is the ruin. Well, obviously, that's the name Israel gives to the city, the ruin. Because if, if you've uh, been to Israel, you know that there is nothing to see at Ai except some archaeological digs. Uh, the city was destroyed and, and left a wreck. In fact, Dr. Schaefer, who teaches at the college, has dug at IE uh, many, many years ago for one, I, I forget, for a month or a week or a summer or some, some length of time, I don't remember. But it means to the Hebrews, the ruin. And that's very interesting g given what it does here, the, the halt that it gives to the Israelites uh, at this particular moment. Obviously, the the to move up the, the uh, escarpment here to the top of the range and to take these two cities would be to open the door to Israel to the ridge route which ran down the ridge, the central ridge there from the Galilee region all the way down through Judea and down through Hebron and down into Beersheba and all the way out into the wilderness. You have a ridge route there. I think I've described this to you before, but if you can picture Israel today, there, there was a main route that went along the coast and went inland through the uh, Valley of Esdraelon, the Jezreel Valley, or what we call the Valley of uh, Armageddon. It went through there and north of the Sea of Galilee and over to Damascus in, in Syria. 
But there was a secondary route that came south out of Galilee uh, down the top of the ridge and connected Jerusalem with the other cities north and south and all the way down to Beersheba and, and the wilderness. And then there was a third route that ran along the crest on the other side of the Jordan River, parallel to the river, but on the top, up in Gilead and Bashan. And uh, that was called the King's Highway. So you have the King's Highway, the central route to the ridge route in Israel, and what was called the Via Maris, which is the way of the sea, which was the main route along the coast. And then they were connected with crossroads, one of which went through Jericho. And that's where they're at. They're on that cross route coming from Gilead across to the ridge route. And so they're anticipating this. And to take these two cities would, would open that ridge route to movement either north or south, whichever way they chose uh, to, to invade. Before sending the Israelite armies up to take Ai or Bethel, up this dry escarpment through the wadis and up to the top of the ridge, Joshua decided to send spies. Now he'd sent spies, of course, to see Jericho. Now he's sending spies up to the top of the ridge to check out the situation up there. Now, as I mentioned to you before, from Jericho to Ai is a distance of 12 miles. But in those 12 miles, you must ascend 3,000 vertical feet because that's the difference in elevation there between Jericho, which is somewhere around 900 feet below sea level, to Ai, which is something like a little over 2,000 feet above sea level. And so they have to ascend these 3,000 feet at the same time. Now, the spies were sent. It's, it's very possible that the spies went out in the morning, went up there, spied it all out, and came back down the same day. You know, can you, can you perceive someone covering 24 miles in one day and ascending and descending 3,000 feet? Well, if they're nomads, they're used to walking a lot, you know, I don't think that would be an impossible thing. But certainly by the next day, they came back. And they came back with a very positive report. These are picking little cities. We can take them with only two or 3,000 guys. You know, that's not exactly probably how they put it, but that is what they're saying. They're saying Jericho, we have conquered, I in comparison, is a cinch. It's a cinch. And Bethel's even smaller. No problem. A piece of cake, to put it in the vernacular. A, a piece of pita bread, or whatever you know they would have said in, in those days. Matzo, yes. It's a piece of matzo. <laughs> Now, think about it. These men are not exactly experts in siege warfare. Okay, start out with that. And it seems like their confidence that's oozing out here it almost is based on the fact that they had taken Jericho with their own strategy, which is, of course, far from the truth. They hadn't taken Jericho with any strategy. They just simply did what God said. It sound, sounded pretty silly. March around the city and blow your horn, you know. And, and then the walls will fall down. In reality... These men seriously underestimated the strength of the city of Ai. We're told later in the next chapter that the population of the city was 12,000, which means that they could probably man the walls if they needed to with nearly 3,000 men. You will find very few instances in history where 3,000 men outside of a wall captured a city with 3,000 men inside of a wall. I have mentioned to you before that military historians who study the, the days when walled cities and castles were used, which is of course most of history, that it was pretty standard that if you wanted to be successful against a walled city or a castle, you needed eight to ten times the number of defenders. 
the attackers needed to outnumber the defenders by eight to ten times. When the city of Constantinople fell in 1453 to the attacking Turks, the city was defended by possibly 10,000 men. The attackers were not absolutely sure of the number, but the number of attackers exceeded 100,000, may have been as great as 200,000. And yet those 10,000 men held the attackers out for six weeks. They defended the walls of Constantinople. Now the walls of Constantinople, of course, are massive walls, but the attacking Turks had cannon and they were blasting the wall apart. And yet the 10,000 held the 100 or plus thousand out for six weeks. And of course, all of us in, in America uh, know the story of the Alamo in 1836 when the forces under the General Santa Ana uh, attacked the Alamo. There were 180 men inside the Alamo and the Alamo wasn't even a good fortress. The attacking army was 4,000. So they are outnumbered 20 to one and yet they held the attacking army out for 12 days. So, I mean, here we are. <laughs> 3,000 guys are going to go up against a fortified city defended by 3,000 guys. Oh, well, under normal siege warfare conditions, unless you've got somebody inside the city who's going to sneak down, open the gate somewhere, uh, like happened for the Crusaders at Antioch uh, much later, or, or something of that nature, you're not going to take that city. Now, this seems to be understood later when uh, after this whole disaster is over and Joshua says, okay, now let's go take Ai, he sends a force of 30,000. He sends 30,000, which is about 10 to 1 over the defenders, which is normal philosophy. Now, what's interesting is the fact that climbing the, the hill to uh, Ai is not exactly easy. At the end of verse 3, when the uh, men come back, they say, oh, we only need two to 3,000 men. Do not make all the people toil up there oil up there. Don't make a whole army climb this, this, this escarpment up these 3,000 feet to attack that city. So it was obviously a, a significant uh, campaign. In spite of the fact that the spies had grossly miscalculated the size of the force needed to capture the city, it was not the tactical error that caused them to be defeated. It's not the tactical error. Had all been well in the Israelite camp between God and Israel, had no one sinned at Jericho, and had they gone forth to attack the city in faith and obedience, they would have taken the city with 3,000 men. We know that because you know the story that's told so well in the book of Judges about Gideon. Gideon was told, 32,000 men, the Lord says. No way you're going to win this battle with 32,000 men, even though you're outnumbered five to one. Still, it's too many. So, you know, he cut it down to uh, 10,000, and God said, it's still too many. You can still say, somehow crow about how you won the victory. So cut it down to 300. Now, there is no way that 300 guys are going to wipe out a force of 120,000 Amalekites and Midianites, you know. But they did. They defeated that force. Why? Because God gave them the victory. And God could have easily given 3,000 men the victory over Ai without any problem at all, just as he had done at uh, Jericho. But they were not right with God. And though it wasn't the tactical error, it was the sin problem that cost them the victory. Let me read a psalm that speaks to this, I think. Psalm 3. Psalm of David, at the time that he was Fleeing from Absalom, you remember his son, the beautiful son, Absalom, 
who ran about the city proclaiming himself that, you know, if I were king, I would take care of a lot of these problems that you people are having, but you know, my dad's old. And so, of course, he led a revolt. And this is what David said in response. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. David wouldn't be afraid of 10,000 against himself alone if God were on his side. And so it was not Israel's miscalculation here. I mean, they weren't veterans in warfare. They were not a warlike people. Uh, they were herdsmen. But that was not the reason for their defeat. The fact that the Israelite force was ignominiously defeated and that 36 Israelites were killed was a result of sin, not of bad planning. The greatest fruit of the Canaanite victory was psychological. Because up to this moment, the Canaanites were frightened to the very core of their beings, the scripture says, so that their hearts melted within them because of what God had done for Israel. And suddenly now it says, Israel is frightened. So the, the fear has been transferred from the hearts of the Canaanites to the hearts of the Israelites. The Canaanites said, Israel can be defeated. We chased them down the mountain, killed 36 of them here. We dragged their bodies up so you can see. Well, let's read on in chapter 7 of uh, Joshua. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dirt, uh, dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why didst thou ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do for thy great name? Joshua had been absolutely confident. He didn't even have a shadow of a doubt that they could take Ai easily. And so he was totally blown away by the news of the rout. I mean, you, could, uh, you, you, <laughs> you couldn't affect him anymore if you hit him with a sledgehammer. I mean, he just, I'm sure, he couldn't believe it. He says, run it by me again. You're kidding me. This couldn't have happened. In spite of his bewilderment, though, look what he does. He immediately rushes in before the Lord, calling the elders together, they go in before the ark at the tabernacle and they cast themselves down, prostrate themselves before the Lord. It doesn't say he blamed the general. What is wrong with you? What did you do? You know, how could you blow this? 
he goes before the Lord. And according to the custom of the time, he tore his clothes, poured dirt on his head, as an expression of extreme mourning and humility. This is like saying, I am really low. You can't get much lower when you're flat out in the ground with torn clothes and dirt on your head. You know, it's about as low as you can get. And that was an expression of humility. And then Joshua prayed a prayer. And in this prayer, he asked God three questions. He says, why? Why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us across the Jordan River to have us destroyed by these pagan Amorites? Why did you do that? And he goes on to lament the fact that they hadn't been willing just to stay in Transjordan. I mean, you know, Gilead and Bashan and going out to the edge of the desert and moving it north and south a bit. They could probably find enough land over there. Why didn't we just stay over there? We already had that land. Why did we want this land on this side? And then secondly, he, he says to the Lord, what can I now say since Israel has been ingloriously defeated? In other words, how do I show my face before the people in your name? How do I instill confidence in my people that we can still win? How can we intimidate the Canaanites if they win? And then thirdly, he asks a question that has a bit of an edge to it. He says, how are you going to bring honor to your name after this debacle? As if God can't bring honor to his name by any way he chooses. Now, scripture says that God will even make sinners to glorify him. Obviously, he was fearful that the Canaanites will now be emboldened. And they'll think, we can defeat Israel. Let's join together in a great alliance. And he says, they're going to come down, surround us, and they're going to cut us off. And he was actually expecting the possibility of an attack. Because now the Canaanites have discovered that Israel is not invincible. Israel can be defeated. What, what we discover here is a measure of faith. Enough faith that he goes before God with the situation. But not a lot of faith in the sense that God is going to you know, reveal exactly what's going on here and why this happened. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it you're falling on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put, among their, put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They have turned their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. You and I live in a day and age when people laugh at sin. 
They laugh at people who want to hold to a standard which is known as Judeo-Christian, which comes from the Bible. I think it's quite clear from this passage that God had expected Joshua to figure out the situation for himself. Now, the fact that he rushed in before the Lord and threw himself on the ground and covered himself with dirt and cried out to the Lord with all these questions implies something. It implies that somehow God is responsible for the disaster. That's what it implies. And that's what God is saying to Joshua. Apparently, it didn't even occur to Joshua that somehow sin had crept into Israel and was responsible for this. It doesn't even seem to have entered his mind at all that this could be the problem. But notice who God is. God who is not only infinite and omniscient and omnipresent, but is all compassionate and patient beyond measure. And this compassionate, patient God says to Joshua, get up on your feet and I will spell it out to you. One of your own people has violated the ban, the ban that you proclaimed just before the trumpets blew and the shout was given and the walls collapsed. And you reminded all the people that the gold and the silver and the iron and the copper are under the ban. No one is to touch it. You reminded the people of that. And yet one of your people has violated that ban. And he has plundered the goods of Jericho for his own personal benefit. And although it was one man, one family, all Israel suffered the consequences. Because as we read at the beginning of chapter 7, it says, but the sons of Israel, sons plural of Israel, acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. And yet one man is listed. God was going to use this event to teach his people a powerful eternal truth concerning the overwhelming awfulness of sin. Sin cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be viewed as, you know, just a little bad thing, you know, like a white lie as compared to a black lie. Just, you know, a little bit. I mean, what is we talking about? A few hundred dollars worth of stuff, maybe. But God wants his people to know that you cannot sin in secret, nor can you sin with impunity. I listed a few passages here that kind of deal with this issue from uh, various places in the Old and New. Let me just read them quickly for us today. In Numbers chapter 32, you remember this passage because um, we emphasized it before, and, and we often use the, the phrase here from verse 23, but Numbers 32, re reading at verse 20. This is when the uh, Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh want to get the land on the other side and, and Moses said, what do you mean you want this land over here? You, are you saying you don't want to help us? And, oh no, we'll help you. We'll go, we'll go on the front of the attacking army. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, God had warned them already with this phrase, be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot sin with impunity. 
it will be reckoned unto you. In Luke 12, we have Jesus' words where he says, beginning in verse 1, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. According to what, accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That, of course, is metaphorically speaking, but it's simply saying that there's no way a hidden secret will, I mean, a hidden sin will remain hidden. Unconfessed hidden sin will be revealed someday, and it will, as if it were, be proclaimed from the housetops. People cannot, there's no such thing as getting away with anything with God. Because to have that mentality is to have the mentality of, of a child relative to a parent, you know. Because a parent is not all-knowing. And, and, and children think that somehow they can get away. Often parents do discover the truth. But with God, He knows all. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. Now that can be seen as scary. But at the same time, that can be seen as comforting because there's no reason to hide from God, because you can't. So we might as well be up front with him all the time and say, God, I blew it again. Help me, you know, whatever it takes. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is dealing with this terrible sin that was discovered within the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it says, um, it, actually, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That, and, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Does that smack of our times or what? You know? For I have, for, for I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has com so committed this as though I were present. Now, you know, how does that fit with the scripture that says, judge not that you be not judged? You know, some people throw that around as if that were a, 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 you know, a statement of the universe that you and I never have a right to judge anything at any time. It's not at all what it's saying. Because Paul says, I have already judged him. Now, that's not because Paul is some kind of super spiritual saint. He is simply pointing out this is what God has said. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Do you feel like that sometimes? <laughs> like a new lump? Uh, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They had just been through the Passover. They had just celebrated it before they took Jericho. And yet there's old leaven now in the lump here so to speak. And, and you know, in a way, they were boasting. We're invincible. We're marching up this hill. We're going to take I as if it were not even there. And suddenly disaster strikes because there's sin in their midst. 
just as Paul saw this sin in the church at, Car at Corinth. I think it's really important to, for us to be reminded of the fact that there are no gray areas with God. There are no gray areas with God. Our acts are either righteous or they are unrighteous. They are not neutral. There is no such thing as neutral. Because our acts are either motivated by the Spirit of God within us or they're motivated by our flesh. How else can we be motivated? Those are the only two motivations. Nothing is neutral. Because you and I are either walking in submission to the Holy Spirit or we are not. One or the other. And if we are walking in the flesh, we will be exposed sooner or later. Because as we read in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now for one who wants to live a life of sin while pretending to be a good person, that is a scary scripture. Because Jesus, when he, in the passage you read in Luke, what he said, what was the leaven of the Pharisees? It was hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of being such saintly guys, you know, the little danglies off their robes and the prayer shawl and uh, we're the perfect people, you know, you ought to be like we are. And, and Jesus said they're, they're sepulchers, they're snake pits because they're laying the burdens on the people to do things which they don't even do. They set aside the teachings of God, the, the, the laws of God to follow the traditions of men. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God can see in the dark, whatever that darkness might be. Being the perfect father, God dealt firmly with this blatant act of disobedience. He didn't cover it over. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, it's no big deal, just one little sin. Greed is a very contagious sin. In our society, we can understand that, I think, but it's true in every society. And its insidiousness is increased when the sin occurs right after a flat-out, blanket, explicit statement has been made by God through Joshua, keep your hands off the things under the ban. It's not like he could say, oh, oh, I forgot, you know, it was so long ago that I was told that. He'd just been told it. He probably picked this stuff up within the hour. I mean, I've heard a short-term memory, but no, I don't think so. If God had done nothing about this disobedience, then later others had discovered what Achan had gotten away with. What would happen to their respect for God? Suddenly the God of Israel would be viewed as no greater than the gods of the pagans. They would have assumed that because God compromised on the issue of, of, of Achan because it was just a small thing and they had, it was a big nation and they had a big task ahead of them, just a small little sin, if God had been willing to compromise at that point, they would know that God was willing to accept something short of obedience to his word. Obedience if you feel like it. Or the, you know, the famous joke that goes around, instead of the Ten Commandments, you have the Ten Suggestions, you know. And, and that's what many people view it as, the Ten Suggestions. You know, if you want to live that way, okay. If you don't, that's okay too. Um, God, God is all-suffering and, and, and God is a great grandfather upstairs and he'll, he'll take care of your problem. And you know, that's the problem of the church in, in much. The church may not have someone who's actually living with his father's wife, but things of similar uh, stripe are happening and, and, and are not dealt with. They're just allowed to exist, pretended like they're not even there. And as a result, the church is weakened and the church is not able to accomplish what it's been called to do because it doesn't even clean up its own act or allow the Spirit of God to clean up its act. 
Well, we ran out of time here. Um, Joshua is told by God, get off your face because I got something for you to do. You know, there's a time to pray and there's a time not to pray. And this was a time to stop praying. So we'll look at that next week. And I mean, if I were Aiken, <laughs> I think I would be a very frightened person.